Welcome to the Shmuel Tenenhouse podcast. My name is Shmuel Tenenhouse. This is my podcast. And with me today, I have an incredible guest and scholar, if I may add. May I add that? Thank you, yes. Uh, so with me here is Rifka Goldstein. Uh, Rifka is a native of Singapore, author, teacher, and life coach. Rifka was born to a Buddhist family, attended Christian schools among Muslims, Hindus, and Euro-Asians. Today, because we're going to fast forward, Rifka is a dating coach and a marriage and family therapist. And we'll get into your specific specialty in a moment. But first, please say hello. Hello, everybody. Smooth of Shmuel Tenant House Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. We are so happy to have you. So uh, I know that your specialty is complex trauma, which I would definitely love to jump into because mm -hmm. it's something so foreign to me. I've never had or experienced trauma in my life. <laughs> so why are you laughing? So my question is like this, okay? So since you're a marriage coach, my question is, if a spouse, one spouse, gets invited out to a Shabbos meal, <laughs> is it advisable that they consult with the other one, hey, should we take the accept invitation or not? Or do we just say, hey, this is an opportunity to lock up a free meal. The spouse should not consult with the co-spouse and just accept the invitation. What says you? <laughs> Shmuel? Free food always take precedence over anything. So, Rosie, I, I, I knew it. I knew it. I knew. I knew the answer. So this is confirmation biased, and you are the right guest, in my opinion, to have because you're very much aligned with this podcast, which is all about the from hustle. So, like I said, now we're going to dive right into your area of expertise and passion is complex trauma and so my question is how does one's childhood trauma show up and manifest itself in someone's dating marriage or parenting or all three Shmuel to understand complex trauma you must first understand that there are two types of trauma there is the big T trauma most people think of trauma as horrific events that happen like war and natural disaster. By the way, when you said tea, I thought it was for tenant house, but that's a <laughs> big tea. Yeah, the big tea. Okay, sorry, sorry. I will let you stay focused. So, big tea trauma has about 10 major symptoms and like flashbacks, nightmares, you know, someone who has been through major trauma would want to avoid going to the place or talk about it sometimes. They are hypervigilant and they're easily startled, right? So when they're triggered, say for example, if they're startled, they can go from zero to a hundred in a nanosecond and become dysregulated and they lose their ability to function. Now most treatment out there are for big T traumas. Little T traumas has all of those symptoms, but even more so, it has over debilitating syndromes. 
So how do you recognize little t trauma? Little t trauma is someone who always feels like they are, have the imposter syndrome. There's a lot of self-doubt, self-hate, excessive fear, control, <laughs> sensitivity, irrational guilt. It's someone who always obsess endlessly about their past mistakes. Don't cut themselves any slacks, always beating themselves up, uh, you know, always feel like a failure. All of these psychological adult disorders has its roots in dysfunctional parenting. Now, a child comes into this world and he needs two things to grow, to become a healthy adult. A child needs breakfast <laughs> and diapers. Yes. Also, what else? Yeah. And they need emotionally to be securely attached to their parents and at least once primary caregiver. And then they have the need to stay authentic, to free to be themselves. Now, what happens is this need to feel connected to their parents is so strong and primal that a child would quickly and easily sacrifice themselves in order to connect with their parents. And we see this sometimes in Frum families, we see this in Balchuva families, um, that you know, in order to fit in, you have to sacrifice your authenticity. That means if I want my needs to be met, I gotta be someone else, I cannot be myself. And what are my needs? I need to feel securely attached, I need to feel connected, I need to feel love. Now, in order to get my needs met, a child learns to adopt roles in a family. We frequently find that there is the hero child. The hero child is that child that is the perfect child. It's always helpful. It's always doing everything correctly. It's, uh, you know, it's that angelic child that everybody praises. In some families, that child is the one that bakes cookies. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. Because they want to be liked and they are liked yeah. because they are the ones making. Right, baking. and they are liked. Yes, yes. Because absolutely. they're baking cookies. By the way, does the birth order have anything to do with what you're referring to? Frequently, yes. Okay, yes. I just want to throw that out to show my intelligence in, the, in this <laughs> you space. Are, you are intelligent. And then next we have the, the mascot child. The mascot child is the entertainer in the family. Is the one that, you know, makes everybody laughs. And this child feels that, you know, as long as everyone is happy, we are good. Mom and dad's happy, we're functional. Things gonna happen. Not all comedians are uh, uh, trauma survivors, but... Most are. <laughs> and then we have the invisible child. The invisible child is that child that says, don't ask questions, don't share your opinion, uh, hide yourself, don't be controversial, go along with the flow, uh, do everything, whatever it takes, just don't be controversial. And because if I'm not controversial, then I'm going to get my mom's love and I'm going to get my dad's approval and, uh, and everyone's going to be happy. 
and then every family has one defiant child and that child is the one that says you guys are all whack okay you are all whack i'm not going with your dumb rules i'm not going to do what you guys want from me i'm not playing this game i'm out of here maybe that's the child that's rooted in reality yes he's the honest child but this honor child becomes the scapegoat for a family because everybody get down on him or her and everybody is like you are the problem because outside looking in look we have this amazing kid that's never a troublemaker we have this funny kid that makes everybody laughs and then we have this quiet kid that never caused any trouble and they hear you come along and you're the problem child does yeah. every it's almost like by the way you described four types of children it's interesting because in the in the Haggadah we also have four children so this is like the trauma of, of the four children at the Seder um, my question is, if a fam does every ch family have these four behaviors? Like if they have fewer kids or more kids, does a child have multiple of these roles or yes. it's only one? Yes, some children have multiple roles. I was sharing this with one of my clients just yesterday, and she said that she wear three of the four hats. Okay. So, yes. But I would also think in a Frum family with 27 children, let's say, you can have five are defiant, four are comedians, seven right, are invisible, right right, right? right, right. But what do all these children have in common? And this is the key of complex trauma. And very, this is the least understood and least talked about major issue that I like to use your podcast to bring into people's awareness and attention. And that is that what these children developed is a shame-based identity. All Not, four. No, yeah, all the children. If you grew up in a home where, you, where your parents are hurt, where, where the family's hurting, and there's dysfunction, then all children in that family grow up with some level of this shame-based identity. Now, many people hear this and they'll say, go ahead. Why are you looking right at me when you say shame-based? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't looking at you, I promise. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to be polite. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, to understand shame, now here's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is what I do is bad, and that's okay because guilt has a necessary function, right? When you feel guilty about something that you do, you can fix it. You make chuva and you fix it. But shame is not what I do is bad, but I am bad. I am not good enough. And how do we develop this? Children growing up in a family where they are neglected or abused form this understanding or they form this identity or that it cannot be that my parents are immature or irresponsible or detached or unaware, untaught or unevolved. But it must be that I am not good enough, that I am bad. Just so you understand, is it that the child 
doesn't necessarily see the fault in their parents and they assume it's their own fault? Yes, because children, while they're developing the emotional template, they don't have the vocabulary, the know-how, the wisdom, the knowledge to understand that their parents are struggling, that they are also children of complex traumas. They are also trauma survivors. So in those years when they were growing, they start to think of themselves as the problem. Because if I were perfect, mom will be happy, dad will never get angry, and everybody's going to be good. I must be the problem. This is how every child across culture, across board, analyzed and internalized. Right? So it's, if I were perfect, I would not have been neglected or abused. So what happened to children who grow up like this? We learn to wear masks, right? Because if I'm not good enough, I now have to hide my shame. And how do we hide our shame? We hide our shame behind our careers. We hide our shame with success, with material possessions, sometimes with, with, with our podcasting. With pod- <laughs> Shmuel, you're funny. Um, you know, we hide our shame sometimes, you know, uh, under anger. We hide our shame in religion. We do all of this to get respect because we think that I cannot be me. I cannot be authentic. But if I show you all of my exterior stuff, you're going to respect me. And then you're going to love me. And I'm okay. So I'm always seeking external validation. It's exhausting, right? Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very, it's one of the reasons, by the way, why I'm not on social media is because it's constant seeking of external validation, likes and comments. And uh, you think social media, by the way, is good for complex trauma or exacerbates the problem? It's one of the worst thing. Look at our children today. If they're seeking validation from, the co- from, from social media, it's one of our greatest downfalls. So, but I appreciate your honesty. I love that you're so forthright and honest. It means that you're over your complex trauma if you can talk about it and express it this way. So that's very good, Shmoli Tenant House. <laughs> so now to answer your question about how it manifests itself in dating, marriage, and parenting, right? So children who survive complex trauma collected all these tools Right? They learn to manipulate, to control, to wear masks, and not to trust anybody because every time they trust someone, someone disappoints them. So what happens is in order to stay safe, they now wear a mask. And this mask protected them through their adulthood until... Including COVID. Including COVID until they start dating or they get married and then they realize that all of these tools that I've used to protect myself is not working because, I mean, think about it, right? How is wearing masks, manipulating, being controlling and not trusting 
going to foster any kind of connection. What? I thought that was the key to successful marriage. What did you say? <laughs> Hiding behind the mask, manipulation. What was the third Control. one? Control. Not trusting. Not trusting? <laughs> yes. You're saying that's, a, that's not a healthy thing for a marriage. Well, I'll explain why. So, okay. for example, okay, in marriage, right, you feel lonely and you feel like you're all alone. You're fighting this war by, my, by yourself and you wonder why. But you're hiding behind all of these masks. You're hiding behind your anger. You're hiding behind. You, you, you can't show your vulnerability because that's a weakness. I can't show you that. Last time I showed you that, show someone that, you know, I was abandoned and abused. No chance I'm showing you that. Now you come into a marriage and you're all guarded and your walls are up. You cannot show your vulnerability. So how are you going to become intimate with someone? And how are you going to become one, as the Torah tells us, with someone if you're all guarded up, right? And complex trauma or shame shows up in marriage in this way as well. You have this constant sense of discontent. You know, it's the wife that says to the husband, you know, I need this house, I need this mansion, I need this car, I need, you know, the latest Gucci bag, I need whatever it is. Because she's looking to assure her that she's okay. She's okay. You know, I'm respectable, I'm okay, she's hiding behind the shame, and now the husband, who is also shame-based, feels like a complete failure. And he's saying, wait, I, I cannot afford that mansion that you want, I cannot afford that car that you want, um, and, and, and it's, it's all negative emotions. In dating, I, and I see this over and over again, how people have the fear of commitment, and the fear of intimacy. And by the way, fear of intimacy shows up as someone who wants to very quickly jump into sex. Like this guy says to me, he goes, he says, you know, Rivka, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? How, how can I make a commitment to someone if I don't, you know, I don't have sex with them? So I said, oh, you want to test drive the car? So I asked him, how many cars have you test driven? And he says, oh, yeah, 200? Lots full. <laughs> yes. The whole lot. Right. And you haven't found one? Okay, let's talk about it. In dating, often we see this people self-sabotage, right? Because I feel like I don't deserve, right? Everything's going to fall apart anyway. So why bother? And I know I'm going to get hurt in the end. So let's just, you know, sabotage and call it quits. In parenting, how does it show up? This shame and complex trauma? Parents who have complex trauma feel very easily triggered and overwhelmed. And then when they get overwhelmed and they feel that they lose control and that it becomes too hard, they just give up. They're like, you know, I can't do this. I'm out of here. Yeah? So it's not like balance and say. So. When you say they're out of there, is it just an expression that you, you're referring to? Or do they actually pick up and leave? So e both. So emotionally, 
they check out sometimes for one hour, which is good, sometimes for two hours, but sometimes they just which check is great. out. Great, which is great. Sometimes they just disconnect and say, no, this child's going to be left to raise himself or herself because it's too much for me, right? Now, understanding all this, people always ask me, now what? You know, I know I messed up, I've got this complex childhood trauma, what is it now? So, obviously, understanding this, recognizing this, is the first step. So, the way I describe it is this. You know, the house of mirrors? Like, you know, you go to this circus and you see all these funny mirrors around you. Every child has a need to know. Do I have value? Do I matter? Am I lovable? Am I desirable? And this child growing up looks to everybody around them to see who they are. And everybody in that home is reflecting to this child who this child is. And not every mirror in a dysfunctional unhealthy family is not accurate mirror, right? So what happens is that this child can look in the mirror and say, Oh, you know, I'm really three feet tall and four feet wide. And then one day, this child grows up and he goes into, you know, I don't know, you know, walk through a mirror in a store or, you know, the in-law's house or in a relationship and he sees a mirror. And this mirror is reflecting to this child. Sometimes that mirror is your therapist. Reflect to you your true self you don't trust it. You say, no, 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 there's something wrong with this mirror, right? So a shame-based person have a hard time accepting compliments, right? If you compliment your wife that her cooking is good and she'll be like, no, you know, it's a little too salty, whatever, you know? Or the husband feeling embarrassed when he gets a compliment and, and things like that. Now. Who would compliment the husband, by the way? <laughs> I do. I compliment my husband. Okay. Good <laughs> I, for him. I think my husband is one of the 36 hidden sadiq. Well, you just blew his cover. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. Yes, yes. One I'm of the 35. 30 <laughs> well, there's only 35 hidden. <laughs> okay, exactly. We know one of them is out now. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Came out of that closet. He was in the closet <laughs> as a hidden sadiq. Yes. And now he just busted out. Baruch Hashem, Tudal Hashem. Um... So what is person to do? You know, now that I know my issues, now what? So I see my role. Can I ask just mm -hmm. a question about the mirror? Mm -hmm. When you were saying somebody sees a reflection of themselves in the mirror mm -hmm. and they think it's inaccurate, like the imposter syndrome, is that because they get a compliment and what they think of themselves is somebody who's unworthy of that compliment? Right, it's because this person core identity is one that is based on shame i'm not good enough so if i'm not good enough then this belief poisons and colors everything in your life it you know every interaction every relationship every business opportunity you know you go into one place i mean you can't you can sit somewhere and someone make a criticism that has got that's not directed at you and you can go into shame. Someone compliments you and you can go into shame. Listening to the podcast, you can go into shame. That's why I don't listen to my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the important thing, people always ask me, you know, what's the next step? The next step is 
you have to sit Shiva right I see my role as a therapist as a coach as someone who sits Shiva with my clients and it's a necessary process and Shiva has a time frame and everybody is different but at some point you gotta get up from Shiva what right. are people mourning? Their false identity? Their shameful identity? So complex trauma is not about what happened to you, but about what didn't happen to you, right? The connection that you crave, the emotional attachment that you needed, the validation that you, you, know, you needed to grow as a healthy, emotionally healthy human being. So it's all those things that you didn't get growing up. So you're sitting Shiva for the loss of something, the loss of a childhood. And for some people, Can I ask you a question? yeah. If I'm doing this, is it appropriate to ask friends to bring over cookies or, or things to my house? <laughs> yeah. To sit Shiva together? No, if somebody's sitting Shiva, just to say, FYI, it would be nice if friends would do a meal train, send things over. <laughs> I'm sitting emotional Shiva right now. You know what, Shmuel? I like that idea. I actually love that idea. Yeah, I'm sitting emotional Shiva. And you know what? In so many ways, you are not functional. Right. Want to hear something that is going to blow your mind? Yeah. Um, how about the fact that when you're in Shiva, the custom is we cover the mirrors to remind you that the mirror that you've been looking in for your whole life wasn't real and was fake. And it's more about the reflection of how you see yourself. And that's kind of putting an end to it. Wow. And you call me the scholar? Hmm. Now, how do we solve attachment issues? Attachment issues has to be solved with attachment. Okay. So the Torah tells us in the very beginning, and therefore you shall leave your father and your mother and become attached to your spouse. It's almost saying, look, don't worry if your parents messed up. You're going to get a second chance. And this second chance is the real thing because you and you together, husband and wife, attached to each other is part of my vast eternal plan. Together, Hashem says, you should look to me, reattach yourselves to me, God, our ultimate parent. How do we do that? 613 ways to connect yourself to me. And so all we need to ask is, how am I doing? Hashem, how am I doing? So instead of looking to man to heal from complex trauma, we look to Hashem. We look to God for our validation. We don't look horizontally because everybody's trying to figure out anyway. Everybody's lost. Everybody's messed up. Everybody is caught up with their own shame-based identity. I mean, it's estimated by about 75% of people have complex trauma. 75%, that's, that's a big number. And the other 25% have very complex trauma. <laughs> <laughs> or lying. <laughs> By right. the way, so you were saying about connecting or attachment to Hashem. Yeah. And how? Do, and what about a spouse with marriage? Is it attachment to a spouse, attachment to God, attachment to both of those things? 
Yes, absolutely. You must first attach yourself to your spouse. And together, you are doing your Avodah Hashem, right? Together, you attach yourselves to God. So the attachment to the spouse is number one, because that's part of God's plan. That's part of God's plan. God's the one that tells us, first mitzvah in the Torah, attach yourself to your spouse so that you can attach together to me and do what I need from you, Mr. and Mrs. Tannenhaus. Right? And it turns out, Shmuel, the shame is the virus and the real plague of our generation. It's the last war that we need to fight before the Mashiach. It's the last cleanse to our Geulah. And let me explain why. Because this dark force called shame, you want to call it Yetzirah or whatever, keeps you fighting an internal war. It keeps you busy fighting that I am not good enough war. It keeps you feeling like I am bad, bad, bad. Can any of this be t tied into or roll into depression and anxiety? 100%, of course. Is right. it the root of absolutely, a lot of absolutely. Yes, yes. Even in the psychology, yeah, psychologists are figuring it out now. What they used to call, you know, um, bipolar, you know, split personality disorders, narcissistic disorder, borderline, whatever. All the ADHD, all has its roots in complex trauma. So if you go to if you go to a psychologist, and you never address this, you're wasting your time and your energy. Right? Because you're never getting to the heart and the root of the issue. So that you can be in therapy for years and years and years and still feel stuck and stuck and stuck. So you need to understand this part about yourself. And it's so hard for people to recognize or admit that this is what they're, f they're struggling. Because I spent my whole life hiding behind the shame. Building up a false persona. Building up the false persona. You built, you built up a LinkedIn page. You got endorsements. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You got verified by the platform. Right. And you keep your keep out with these external appearances. You know, so you've done, you've taken so much energy to hide your shame. So very frequently, you know, I mean, I, I, I have a, a, a guy that said to me, you a know. Client? Yeah. And Can he's. you share his name? <laughs> <laughs> he says There's to no me, "There's no laws, by the way, on no. the small ten house podcast. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's a hippo-free zone." <laughs> he says to me, "He goes, you know, I, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about this because I've already had it. You know, essentially, he's saying that I've got this. I've put it, compartmentalized it, put it in my box. I don't need to look at it. I don't want to deal with it. And meantime, his his marriage is suffering. His you know his children are suffering." But he's saying, no, I can't. I can't look at it. I can't talk about it. So he's hiding behind the shame of feeling, I mean, he was bullied as a child, you know, and um, tremendous anti-Semitism that he endured. So you can understand, you know, he, he, bu he built up this strong persona. I am the wrestler and I am not going to let anybody see my weakness. Anyway, so absolutely, yes, all of this... All By the way, how, how nice and how grateful should we be that anti-Semitism is behind us? <laughs> right. It's a thing wait, of the past. I wa Wait, I want to tell you there's a place for it. Let's talk about it. There is a place for it. Anti-Semitism exists to wake us up 
That's it. Because when we forget who we are, when we forget our identity, anti-Semitism rises up and say, hey, you Jewish people, you have a mission. You have a purpose. You're not just, you know, trying to make an existence and make a living. You have a higher mission and purpose in this world. So that's, to me, is the reason for that. Now, the most... By the way, I'm, so, I'm nervous now for you because you just gave everything away. How, Like in terms of future business, a coach, they just have to listen to this one podcast. You're absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. No, I would I'm like sorry. to do that. I mean, <laughs> sorry. To, I know. I'm sure you had ambitions. And I, I, no, this is important information because this is the last war, as I said, that we're fighting. And I want us all to just really get out of this goalless, going to Geula. So the more people understand this, the better it is because then otherwise, as I was saying before, that this dark force... It wants us to keep fighting this internal, internal war that paralyzes us, that I'm not good enough. And by the way, it's a sneaky enemy, right? This enemy is very sneaky. And it makes you think everything that you're not. It's like it keeps you in darkness. It keeps you hostage in darkness. It keeps you down because as long as it keeps you obsessing about your shame and how not good enough you are, then you cannot do your Avodah Hashem and it wins. It's actually, that you mentioned it, it's actually the Tanya from the last few days, which is that if a person is experiencing melancholy, one, he shouldn't be over-obsessive with it, Two, it's possible that the reason why he was born to begin with was to constantly have this struggle and battle and to constantly overcome. And that the depression is actually a tactic of a Yetzirah to for, for a person to not feel motivated to do anything. And then when he's feeling that, he just and feeling sadness, he'll want to reward himself by sinning or doing something else. And so it's like a vicious cycle. Not, my, not for me. It's from the, the way I've, I, I, I've understood uh, Tanya the last few days well this is why we know that Tanya Hasidis, is our salvation right in this generation because without this core this understanding we're lost right well like the hamster in the in the wheels that can get out of it right so Tanya is our ultimate ultimate manual for coming out of the plague of this generation, which is self-persecution, self-hatred. And, but we're not intimidated. We know who we are. We know our destiny. We know that God is with us and God is in us and we are indestructible. So the short of it is this, all this hurt and pain and struggle that we experience in our childhood, in our adulthood, in our everything in our lives, has a purpose. Because to the extent of your hurt and your pain, so your joy, which means that it prepares your vessel for the joy. So all is good. There's no bad parts. Our parents do the best they know how. They do their best. 
and you have Hashem on your back and you do what you need to do. Can I jump into some inane questions now? First of all, so much to unpack and uh, so much to, uh, to absorb. Um, and so um, now I'd like to just completely veer off course and ask some of my burning questions. Would that be okay? <laughs> yes. For the next few minutes. Yes. Okay. Um, so one question. Um, which years were you at Harvard? Because you went to Harvard. And I'm curious if back then you noticed any sort of anti-Semitism brewing or the path that kind of Harvard is today. So I graduated over 20 years ago. And I do want to tell you, even back then, I said to my husband uh, that if we ever have any children, Hashem Baruch Hashem, and this child, you know, has um, an in to Harvard because of you know the legacy. And your email address now. And my email address. And I said to my husband, but I would love instead for my child to go to yeshiva, learn Torah, because. All my years at Harvard pales in comparison to, let's just one page in the Tanya, to the Torah learning that I have today. And so, and by the way, when you said that, it reminded me of something. Years and years ago, I remember sitting in, a, in the Harvard Library, and I came across an article. The Harvard Library would be... In Harvard, right? In Harvard, yeah. yeah, yeah. It'd be crazy if they put that in Yale. <laughs> It'd be <laughs> <Right>. so confusing. <laughs> so I don't think it was something in the archives, but somebody left an article on the table, and I picked it up, and I read it. And it said something. Uh, it was a report about how mainstream psychology don't work on Jews and they don't understand why. I wish I've taken a picture of that article, but remember back then I wasn't Jewish, number one, and number two, you know, cell phone wasn't a thing, and if you had a cell phone, you didn't have a camera. But this article stood out on me uh, because, because it said, but this is too far out, this findings is just too far out, we cannot publish it. But today, as a Jew, I realized that it's because a Jew has two neshamas, right? You have, you have your nefesh elokis and your nefesh bahamas, uh, and and these two are constantly, uh, you know, struggling for your attention, and that's why mainstream psychology doesn't work on a Jewish person, and so Jews should only uh, or look for from therapists or go to Torah for their healing. In general, I will say that I have been through many a therapist in my life, and I've definitely seen a huge difference between going to somebody who is from a similar background than I am and somebody who is not. It just mm-hmm. is almost almost uh, almost no no connection. I would say day or night, but then who's mm-hmm. the day, who's the night? <laughs> By the way, you know why it's called Nefesha Bahamas? Because mm. it wants to be in the Bahamas right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Um, Right. So you did a book, another question, you did a book mm-hmm. collaboration with Rabbi Manas Friedman. Mm-hmm. My question is, how did you choose Rabbi Manas, and it, was it related to the fact that he is the number one YouTube rabbi? <laughs> mm, you know this, 
concept that Hashem guides the footstep of man. Um, I found Rabbi Friedman on one dark night having a you know a power struggle with my two-year-old. Um, I was 42 and he was two-year-old. He was two and and he won. And I remember sitting uh, at you know almost one o'clock in the morning in my room in Singapore and saying to myself, what just happened? I just lost a battle with a two-year-old. And and I said, I'm losing grip. I'm losing grip to my this parenting now. Meantime, remember, I read every self-help book. I have read every parenting book, secular and non-secular, but I didn't get this. I didn't understand it. So I tell myself, I'm going to go on a shelf, pick up an Igros Kodesh. I'm going to ask the Rebbe for direction. And by the way, I was one of those people that the Rebbe reached, you know, I felt like I was recruited post Gimel Tamos, right? I was one of those people who never had a chance to meet the Rebbe, had no idea, but I was very inspired by the Rebbe's work. Now, this is not something that, uh, you know, that is, is beyond, beyond nature. I went to the computer and this is something I don't do. I, back then I didn't have a Facebook account. I'm, I, you know, I'm not technologically inclined, but I went on the internet and I must have typed in something like um, um, from parenting or, you know, something of that sort. I don't remember what I typed. And Rabbi Freeman came up. Was it on YouTube? No, it wasn't. It was wow. on 11213.org. And it's funny because he calls himself the number one YouTube rabbi, but he doesn't say he's the number one one two three one two three. No, he became number one back then. He wasn't, and back then he was. So I found him on one one two one three. Shout out to Yoni Katz who put that together. So I found that, and there was a whole series on parenting. What did I do? I watched that series twenty eight times in a row that night so i went from completely overtired and exhausted and not able to sleep to 10 o'clock in the morning i'm wide awake and now i am charged i got this i finally found what i was looking for so i looked up rabbi friedman and i found out just about the same time that oh by the way and that that week i must have watched 40 hours of his work right back to back back to back on youtube on, on uh, 11213 and then what happened was um i found out that he was going to go to israel now my husband and i had planned to go to australia that year for vacation and then i found out that rabbi freeman was going to go to israel i said to my husband change of plans we're going to israel so we went to Israel and I met Rabbi Friedman Yutes Kislev. And to tell you what an evolved man he is, right? We sit down and we're having a conversation. Even his name has man in it. <laughs> man is Friedman. <laughs> right. Um, and I'm sitting across him and I'm finishing every sentence for him. How rude was that? Right? He would say something and I would finish it for him because I know his stuff so well by the time I met him. And he was not one bit defensive. He was not one bit offended. He was amazed. And, you know, and the end of that was, let's collaborate. Let me write a book. Because I had already at that point started writing a love letter for my son because I became a mother at 40. 
right? I started writing what some people call an ethical will. It's really a family. I call it my, you know, a life, life uh, manual. I wanted to leave my son something that he can have for the rest of his life. So I started writing a love letter to my son when I was pregnant. And I f- it ended up and finished up as a book based on Rabbi Friedman's teachings, which is all Kassidus. So, yeah, yeah. So thank you, Rabbi Freeman. What's the name of the book? Creating a Life That Matters. Okay. And excellent. by the way, it wasn't my choice of title, right? I would have chosen a title like everything you know about li- you know about life is wrong. That would have been my title. But Who Rabbi chose that? Rabbi Friedman? No, he didn't either. It was the his uh, wife. No, no. <laughs> it was the his publisher. Yeah, yeah. That's what Robert Friedman does. He tells the publisher what he wants, and then the publisher tells you. No, I doubt. I mean, you may be right, but on the other hand, he did say to me that, you know, everything you know about life is wrong. It's not a title that the Rebbe would have approved. So this this is a rabbi, and I know this is true with a lot of Hasidim or the Rebbe Shlokam, that they don't make a decision without considering what would the rabbi think, what would the rabbi tell them, which is respectable, which is admirable, which is the way to live, and also... Um, you know, you see a lot of Hasidim, uh, the Rebbe's uh, shlokim, attaching themselves, a healthy attachment to the Rebbe. And that, that's, one of the, well, that's one of the healing and their salvation. Okay, uh, a few more quick questions. Um, from your opinion, what is a bigger crisis in the Frum community? Is it unmarried singles? Or is it unhappy couples? (laughs) Well, now that we spoke about complex trauma, hopefully the unhappy couples will start to understand that your spouse is not your enemy, guys. They're not. Not your spouse, not your in-laws, not your husband's ex-wife, not your future ex-husband. No, none of them is the enemy. So don't fight the wrong enemy. So unhappy couples, it's just a symptoms of complex trauma. And always, the worst of your marriage is better than being single. Okay, so let me repeat that. So everything that you struggle in your marriage, all the problems you have in your marriage are problems you're supposed to have. The problems that you have when you're single, dating, and all that, you know, all of that stuff are problems you're not supposed to have. Okay, which is my next question. So, like we know, there's a lot of singles that need to get married in our community. This is n- so I don't have necessarily a solution for it, but do you think it would be helpful for some of the s- singles to speak to some very dysfunctional couples? <laughs> so they should be a little comforted at the moment with the fact that they're single. <laughs> well, you know, what they see. It's not an entirely accurate picture because they may see the fighting, they see the children with the dirty diapers, they see all the, you know, all, all that mess. And, and, but the truth is, there's the good that they don't see. So, so, so I think married couples needs to, you know, faith it till you make it to help these young people and these uh, single people feel more, you know, um, empowered and encouraged. Okay. And then another burning question. How can couples reconcile their personal differences and styles around finances? Ladies, do what your husband tells you. What? I'm going to get canceled. 
<laughs> Financial intimacy, right? So it's important, right? Somebody has to be in charge. You want to surrender. Obviously, if you have a husband who is irresponsible, then, you know, you need therapy and go and talk it out. But generally speaking, I think that, you know, women has to start respecting their husband. And it's very, very hard because we are struggling with our complex trauma. And then, you know, we put all the blame on a husband. We get into the victim mentality and, and that's not good. So, so financial intimacy is surrendering to your husband, trusting that your husband's going to make the right decision for the family, um, allowing your husband to take charge. Now, all this advice, again, is, you know, it's very good if you have a normal, so to speak, marriage, right? But if you have a marriage that's struggling with the, th the three A's, you know, addiction, affairs, or um, what's the other, abused, no, then they, these things don't apply to you because, you know, you've got bigger, bigger problems to solve. I'm just, you know, addressing the normal couples. So there. Okay. Thank you, thank you. Um, if people want to follow you online, give you some external validation, help with <laughs> your complex trauma, also to drive you a lot of business so you don't have to listen to your husband's finance decisions, where can they find you? AskDaughterRivka.com. You can find me on AskDaughterRivka.com, and I have four friends on Instagram, so you can be my fifth. Okay, amazing. You're not. It's not a big, uh, <laughs> not a big avenue or channel for you. No, no, I don't do that. I don't spend time on social media. I should, but I don't because my current clients just, you know, I feel like um, I'm focusing on them, and that's a big part of my day. I focus on my clients, and you know, like just even lighting the Shabbos candles. I go through every client. I plead to Hashem. I said, Hashem, strengthen them, help them find the healing that they need. And, you know, so I focus on that. So thank you for this opportunity to, you know, to share my platform and, to, you know, to, to talk about uh, the work that I do. Thank you, Shmuel Tenenhaus. Thank Shmuel you. Tenenhaus. And, I, and when, I send you, when I sent you the questions, I told you that if necessary, if there's, you know, enough people signing a petition that we need to do a second one. You know, we have hundreds of thousands of signatures and we'll definitely, I would say, consider it, right? Right. If people ask questions, we can answer. Yes. Thank you, everyone, so much. <laughs>